Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Chris McIntyre is an experienced detective with 34 years under her belt. She was one of the first female detectives in the Breaker Squad and the Bureau of Criminal Investigations, or BCI. Chris was also the first female in Victoria Police to run her own station and to be elected the Director of the Police Association Credit Union. Chris also ran her own private investigation company and currently she's the director of Tremac Investigations. Hi Chris and welcome back to The Crime Couch. Thank you for having me back, Rochelle. It's a pleasure. How do you compare today's police women with your experiences? I think we were brought up in the school of hard knocks uh, when you think about it. And I worked with a number of trailblazers, I think, if I can mention their names. Uh, Bernice Masterson, who became um, Assistant Commissioner. Sandy Langlands, who retired as a commander. Jenny Williams, who also retired as an inspector. And going back to my days uh, in the 70s at the Police Women's Division, Maggie McFay, who retired as a super. So, you know, they came up through the ranks in really difficult times, not taking it away from today's ladies either. You were a trailblazer yourself. You were one of the most experienced police women. Are there any similar sort of police women now that you sort of regard in the same sort of a way? I think individually everyone does their job. I think we've come a long way in nearly 100 years. Uh, when I joined, we were 4% of a total policing population of four and a, five and a half thousand, and now there's 17,500, we're about 12%. So I think, you know, today's ladies are still maybe doing it a little tough out there. I think they are, and I think there's a bit of a pushback from some dinosaurs in the job that say, oh, women are getting promoted and... What would you say to criticism like that? Well, I think you have to look at the facts. And I was talking to a a bloke the other day from the TPA and I said, how many senior sergeant ladies do you think there are? Oh, there's too many. He said, there's too many. And I said, well, out of a population of about 750 male senior sergeants, there's about 150 female senior sergeants. So uh, he didn't have anything to say about that. Chris, after being in the Breakers and BCI, you then worked in public relations with Assistant Commissioner Bernice Masterton. What was that like? Was it a natural fit for you to do that work? The reason why I went to public relations, I just had my first son or first baby and we didn't have maternity leave or part-time policing or anything like that. So I actually wanted to get off the road for 12 months and I went to public relations and I was, while I was there, I was approached by Bernice and um, Framie, who was a, a deputy, I think, at the time, to do an operational order for Police Open Day. So I actually completed the first operation order for the Police Open Day for Bernice, which uh, I think it's still running today. I think it is. 
You then, Chris, were in industrial relations. What did you learn in that role? I was already um, a delegate for the police association and I left public relations and went to industrial relations just to further my experience dealing with upper management in relation to um, industrial situations, uh, you know, to help me really in my delegate role. That would have been quite a challenging role. What did you learn about command that you can mention? (laughs) That I can mention on this podcast? Uh, I think compromise, Um, be respectful, compromise, but still get the message across. Diplomacy, I think. Diplomacy, for sure, yeah. You would have learned that for sure. You you were also the first policewoman, Chris, in charge of a police station in Diamond Creek. You stayed in the police residence with two small children at the time. What were some of the challenges in that role? And would you regard this as one of your proudest achievements? To work in a semi-rural town, uh, for a start, uh, they'd never had a lady in charge at the police station. So you really had to win over the community, uh, get back in touch with the CFA and the service clubs. Um, prior to putting in for the role, I actually did a, uh, my own survey uh, by doing a foot patrol of the area and uh, asking people what they wanted from their local police. I wanted to encourage members of the public to come into the police station, not be frightened of their local police and be a true community policing type situation. What a great idea. What was your response from the community? I bet they'd never been surveyed like that before. Um, I think they were a bit sceptical at first because, geez, you know, we've got a Sheila in charge of the cop shop. What can she do? But I learned very quickly that um, they wanted to see more police presence. They wanted foot patrols. They wanted the police station open, longer hours, those sorts of things, which I achieved. Well, it's what, if you look at what VicPol is currently doing, endeavouring to get police back into the schools, to do coffee with a cop, to do all those sorts of proactive, being part of the community. How important is that for the police to be on the front foot? Yeah, everything old is new again. And really um, to be in touch with the community, is particularly at a small station like Diamond Creek, um, that's, that's the essence of what policing's all about. And I brought back the blue light disco. Um, so every month I had a thousand kids and uh, the money we raised from that, we put back into the community. I put a skateboard ramp at the back of the police station so that kids had to come into the watch house and ask for permission to go around the back. And that was bringing young kids back into the police station. Had uh, um, other initiatives uh, in relation. I put a a police lady into the schools in where they'd stopped doing that. I thought it was important to put them into the couple of the local high schools I had there. Well, see, that's important because police also get to look human. Yes, exactly, exactly. And then I was living in the house next door for a couple of years before they sold up all the police houses. So that was an experience I would never do again with two young children because I had people knocking at the door all times of the night and day some trying to break into the house, you know, to get you and all this sort of thing. But I'll tell you a quick story with um, one night, it was about two o'clock in the morning and I heard a bit of a ruckus out the front of the police house and all of a sudden footsteps on the front porch and a knock at the door. 
And at that time, my partner was home and he sort of nudges me and says, oh, you know, this will be for you. So anyway, I put the dressing gown on, get up, go to the door, open the door and it's a young bloke at the door. He's got a flat tyre and I look out and it's raining and it's overcast. It's two o'clock in the morning. He looks at me and he says, oh, is the copper home? I need some help to change the tyre. I said, one minute, mate, I'll go and get him for you. So I got my husband out of bed and uh, told him it's his job. How did that go down? Uh, Not too well, not too well. (laughs) I believe you also attended an armed robbery at the Diamond Creek pub at one stage. What happened there, Chris? Well, I was in the police house and what I'd do in the mornings, I'd go into the, I'd kit up like, put the police uniform on, going to the police station to make sure whoever was on duty, usually they were one up, they were ready to go, and then I'd go back into the house with the two young kids. I had two kids at primary school, take them to school and go back into the police station. Anyway, this morning I did the usual routine. I went into the police station and Mick Rooney, one of the blokes there, was quickly kidding up and putting his uh, gun in his holster. He said, I just got a call there's um, an armed hold-up happening at the Diamond Creek pub. So what had happened was there was a bloke on a motorbike had been waiting in the shadows for the cleaners to go into the pub, followed them in and tied them up, locked them in the, the cleaners' room and waited for the manager. And the manager arrived with the chef and his wife. So he captured them. And he tied the chef up and put him in a cupboard and the chef climbed, untied himself, climbed out the window, went around to the, the panel beater shop, told them, and instead of ringing D24, they rang the police station. So hence, you know, going back, here I am. So we jump in the police car, tear down to the pub, get on the blower and ask for backup. We, as we arrive, uh, we've got our guns drawn. We're like Starsky and Hutch on our tippy toes, you know, going around corners and that sort of thing. And we see the crook and literally running out with a calico bag and a sawn-off shotgun. So he jumps on the motorbike and I kid you not, Mick takes out his uh, baton, his ass baton. He throws it like a boomerang. It didn't come back and it hit the crook fair and square on the back of the head and he tumbled off the bike. It's unbelievable. So we run over. We we haven't got a div van. So we run over, handcuff him. And by that stage, a couple of the panel beaters have come around to have a bit of a gawk. So we say to the panel beaters, sit on him and wait for the backup. We don't cordon and contain. Nah, nah, we're going in because we think there's a second. So anyway, cutting a long story short, we go in there and we get everybody, you know, they're all tied up and that sort of thing. And the crooks captured and then I remember that I've left two kids home. So I say to uh, Mick, I need the car, mate. I've got to go. I've got to go back to find out what's happening with the kids. So I tear back and here they are out the front of the police house on their scooters and their skateboards and that sort of thing. Put them in the police car, take them to school and they actually got detention at lunchtime for being late for school and making up lies about their mother catching an armed robber. I bet the kids would have really got such an insight into what it is to be an active working police member. Oh, yeah, yeah. And when you look back on it, because the police house was right next to the police station, it was pretty easy for the public 
to walk up your front um, pathway and knock on your door. And they weren't all pleasant experiences. So the kids were really exposed probably to a side of policing I regret when I look back on it. But, um, you know, that was the nature of the job uh, and that's, that, that you couldn't do anything about it really. And it doesn't matter. I remember even as a child getting us getting because everyone always knows where the where the cop lives. Yeah. So you always yeah. get, you know, knocks on the door. Yeah. Bill, can you help us with this ticket we got, yeah. parking tickets or any sorts of issue? Yeah, it was, you know, that's where you go for assistance. Yeah. So we had the same sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think generally once you know a police member is in a specific street, in a specific house, you always get those knocks on the doors. Always, always. To sign something or to help out with something else. And there was another, I'll tell you another quick story where I was one up in the police station and I was with the clerk who'd come to check on the property. Anyway, there was a bit of road rage happening out the front. So I said to the property steward, get on the blower and call for backup because my blokes that were working were out, out and about. And I said, I'll go and try and sort it out. So I went out the front and right behind me locks the door and all I could see were his two little beady eyes looking th through the Venetian blinds at me. And I'm thinking, God, if I have to retreat inside, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that. But anyway, the day before I'd just done OS training and we had the ass buttons where you just bang them on the ground and they extended and they taught you to um, hit the back of the legs on the person to get them down. So we've got these two blokes fighting out at the front and um, I couldn't separate them and, and I didn't want them to turn on me. So I used that little bit of a hint just to give them a bit of a whack on the back of the legs and drop them down uh, in time for backup to come and, um, you know, handcuff them and sort it out. So that was a funny story. So the uh, OS training came in handy. Yeah, it did come in handy, yeah. <laughs> You also were the first female director of the old police credit union. Now, what attracted you to this role, Chris? You non-executive uh, directors, that means you need to um, be voted on. Um, I was aware there weren't any female directors and I thought that uh, to balance out the males around the table, it would be handy to have a female. I had good intentions. I'd been in a delegate for the police association for over a decade so always had the members heart at stake you were also awarded an apm um an australian police medal in 1997 congratulations Thank you. it's a big achievement not a lot of members get an apm what was yours awarded for i haven't got it in front of me i can't specifically remember but it was at the time I was uh, the commander at Diamond Creek Police Station and heavily involved with the community. So I think through my community policing efforts, uh, that was recognised by command. Would you regard that as one of your proudest achievements? I should say yes, but I can tell you one of my proudest achievements was when two Year 12 students from the local high school came up and asked me to present at their debutant ball. And I thought, well, I've won. Yeah. Fantastic. You now have 34 years in the job. You're considered a very experienced police member. 
Why and when did you retire, Chris? Um, I retired, uh, well, I can't remember the exact date, but I've been out of the job probably for um, 18 years now. I wanted to draw a line in the sand. I actually wanted to do something else. Uh, my partner, uh, who resigned as a detective senior sergeant, had worked for corporates in the security industry, and together we decided to have a go at running our own private investigation company. So I actually left the job on the Friday and started working in our own company on the Monday. He had connections through his work in private industry side of things, so we hit the ground running. Was it an easy decision to retire? No, it wasn't because even though I wanted to be involved in our own security company, you're still leaving behind something that you've known for more than half your life and uh, it, it is an ident identity. So you worry a little bit about losing part of yourself, but I think I was just drawn to doing something else. You are the founder and director of your own private investigation company and currently the director of TREMAC Investigations. What's the matter with lawn bowls? Pardon? What's the matter with lawn bowls? Oh, yeah. I actually come from um, great heritage of lawn bowlers. Um, my father and brother and actually my nephew is Australian cat champion lawn bowler. So, uh, no. Nah. That's not for me. I, I think um, age is a number and you have to retire to do something. Um, and while you're happy with what you're doing, keep going. What were your challenges, Chris, beginning to work in the private sector? Because I know a lot of members uh, leave the job and realise the resources that they had and the fact that you can get on the phone and get what you want. What, what were the challenges for you? Yeah. There were challenges because, uh, first of all, you had to de-police yourself um, because you'd been in the job uh, for, you know, so long. And to then start to deal with civilians, you had to get out of that policing mode. And How do you do that? Well, it just, it took me probably more than 12 months um, that when you're dealing with a, um, an alleged perpetrator, he's actually not a crook. He's, you know, um, so you have to uh, curb, I think, the way you talk to people and um, uh, be softer in your approach. What so, about customer service? Is that, was that a big challenge? No, I, no, actually it wasn't for me because of my experience at Diamond Creek and dealing with the community. Um, building rapport with people is very important and particularly in the civilian side of things, getting people to trust you fairly quickly. Um, and with, you know, in the back of your mind, getting what you want out of them, uh, but building that rapport. So, no, I, I handle that side of it fairly well. Is it hard for former police members and veterans to stop investigating, Chris? 100%. I can tell you this, when I sit in the car as an observer, well, I'm only in the passenger seat, I cannot stop swirling my head from side to side, looking at things, looking at people. And I say to my husband, can you stop me from doing this? I just can't. You're never out of it. You're never out of the mode. And you're always seeing something that other people don't see, 100%. I don't think you ever grow out of that. My father still does that when he's in the car. He's looking at the heads next to him. Oh, 
always, always. And then you'll see a car parked. You think, oh, is that a stolen vehicle? Or you see um, somebody in the car. Um, oh, you know, he looks like you know he looks like he could be wanted. Or <laughs> so, how do you relax? Oh, how do I relax? I go to the gym nearly every day. I keep myself very fit. I'm still working in the business. I've got grandchildren. I've got a big yard. We've got a holiday house. So, yeah, life's very full. What advice, Chris, would you give to any female out there listening to the podcast that wants to become a police member, that wants to join the job? What advice would you give her? I would recommend the police force to anyone, uh, but go in there with the right intentions. Go in there as a career, not just a job. Go in there with your heart. Um, and do the best you can because at the end of the day, you are on equal pay. You have very, very good super and the conditions are very good. And if um, you have a family, you've got plenty of maternity leave, plenty of um, part-timing. And I used to say to the blokes, just because they're part-time now, they will come back full-time and it costs a lot of money to train people. So we want to keep them. So it's... I. It's a good job for females. It's a fantastic job. You've had an incredible career. So what's next for you, Chris? I guess I've got to look at really retiring one day, but um, I'll do that when I'm ready because I say to people, um, and even people in the job, you've got to retire to do something Don't because you, what's going to motivate you to get out of bed? Um, it doesn't matter if it's lawn bowls, great, because that's what my dad did. You know, he retired and became secretary of the local bowling club and the local RSL. So you've got to be busy. You've got to have something to motivate you every day. And I think you need to still have your contacts, don't you, with people. And as you said, you've got to really build your network. Yeah, absolutely. And um, every month uh, there's a group of uh, coppers. We have a luncheon. And uh, same old war stories come out, of course, but that's okay. You know, we uh, love uh, getting together and having a drink. Very important. And to possibly talk about lawn bowls. (laughs) Yes, yes, that might happen one day. Well, Chris, thank you. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you very much for sitting with me today on The Crime Couch. Yeah, and thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch.